we enter the twelfth week of the glory of the Messiah. There's never enough glory, is there? And this week, I want to start by reading Romans in chapter 10, verse 9. It says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? I'm not looking for an answer on that. Maybe by the end you will know or be able to respond. So this morning I want us to explore the notion of Jesus being Lord as presented in the New Testament and from the writers from the Gospels right the way through to Revelation. And then consider for a few moments the implications of this confession for us. In the New Testament times, the term Lord could be used in three different ways. It could be used as a term of polite address, or as a term of honour, or as recognition of a deity. So it might be used in the same way as we use the term sir, you know, at school. I think they still say it, don't they? Do they, Andrew? They still say sir? Yes, they do. Sir or miss. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you would say, sir, as a a title of respect to somebody. I'm not sure about that in schools. but um, So they could use that in the New Testament, Lord, addressing somebody. Um, Or if a slave used the term, it meant master. He was submitting. He was showing his submission to his master. So it might be used as a teacher or as as a slave, um, but used in the context of worship. It was an acknowledgement of God. So they would use this term Lord as an acknowledgement of God. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, where where they had the word Yahweh, it was translated as Kyrios, Lord. So where you read of Lord in Scripture, it's very often a rendering of Yahweh. In other words, it was an acknowledgement of God. Now, which way is it used of Jesus in the Gospels? Is it a term of um, submission? Is it a term of respect? Or is it an acknowledgement of his deity? Well, the reality is it's all three. And we're going to just look at that for a moment. Certainly as a rabbi, Jesus would have merited the designation Lord as a term of respect from his disciples. And indeed, Jesus himself said to the disciples at the Last Supper, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And many times in the Gospels, those who came to Jesus for him, for help from him, called him Lord. In Matthew 8, 2, the leper came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing... You can make me clean. What did Jesus respond? I am willing. Be clean. In Matthew 9, 28, two blind men came to Jesus for healing and they acknowledged him as Lord. When the man brought his son to Jesus to be released from a demon after Jesus had come down from the Mount of uh, Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 15, he addressed him as Lord. And even the Roman centurion who came to Jesus to ask him to heal, his servant addressed him as Lord in Matthew 8, 5 to 8. So we see familiar when they come, people come to Jesus when they need help, they say, Lord. In all of these cases, Lord is used as a term of respect. But maybe they could also see something more in Jesus that beyond respect. He was more than just a rabbi. He was one who could fulfill their needs. So maybe this term is reaching beyond respect. Because he had the power to make a difference. 
in their situations, let me tell you, he still does. Lord is being used here as a term of surrender, of acknowledging that they needed to submit to someone who clearly had a higher authority to be able to do what they needed him to do. And we certainly see this when the disciples are in the midst of the storm on Galilee. In Matthew 28, 25, it says, the disciples went to him, woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. In this, they were clearly acknowledging that only Jesus had the power to save them from the storm. They recognized his authority, but even then were still amazed at his ability to calm the storm as they exclaimed, what kind of a man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so they were beginning to touch on something more than just that respect of him as their rabbi. They could see there was something bigger. They could see that there was someone here who had authority even to calm the storms. And of course... This brings us to the the third element. Throughout the Gospels, this term is also used to designate Jesus' divinity. It begins with the birth narratives, when the angel announces to the shepherds, for to you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. Throughout the birth narratives, the term Lord is used of God himself. And so there's every reason to support the notion that the angel's announcement is also an affirmation of Jesus' divinity. In Peter's first encounter with Jesus in Luke's gospel in chapter 5, after that miraculous catch, Peter's response to Jesus is, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Peter was brought face to face with his own sinfulness in the presence of Jesus, but was then the recipient of grace. Because at that moment, in in his acknowledgement, Jesus called him as a disciple. This understanding continues and increases with Peter throughout the Gospels. In John 6, 67 to 9, when some of Jesus' wider disciples, circle of disciples, began to desert him, Jesus asked his inner circle, do you wish also to go away? What's Peter's response? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. You've got this revelation of lordship, of divinity that's coming as Peter goes on his journey with the Lord Jesus. And all the disciples are heard using this term in this way. And even some outside of the disciples' circle use it. When the man born blind is healed in John chapter 9, after debates with the Pharisees, Jesus finds him. And the man acknowledges Jesus saying, Lord, I believe. And we're then told that the man worshipped Jesus. That would have been unthinkable had he not just acknowledged him as God. No Jew would worship anybody who wasn't God. That was clear and ununderstood. At the raising of Lazarus, after Jesus has declared himself to be the resurrection and the life, Martha responds by saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. And of course, we can't miss Thomas's declaration. After the risen Lord has appeared to him in the room and Jesus says, there are my nail prints, put your finger in, put your fingers in my side. What's his response? My Lord and my God. And he worships him. Jesus self-designated himself as Lord on a number of occasions. 
In Matthew 12, 8, he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, putting himself on a level with God who gave them the Sabbath. In a number of places, he identifies himself as the one who's in who, into whose hands the final judgment has been given. So placing himself equal with God. If I was to stand here and say to you this morning, well, God's given to me the power of the last judgment. I'm going to be the one you stand before. What would you think? You'd think I was off my brain, off my nut. But Jesus said, God has given to me the power to judge in the end times. Jesus was very clear about who he was. Again, in conversation with the Pharisees, he asked them whose son the Pharisees think the Messiah is in Matthew 22. And when the Pharisees respond by saying the son of David, Jesus poses a question or a counter argument to them based on Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, thus he acknowledges that the Messiah is on a level with God himself. The scripture is clear when Jesus is designated as the Lord throughout the Gospels. It's more than just acknowledgement of respect. It's more than just honoring somebody who is a master. It's perceiving him as God in human flesh. Following the resurrection, the writers of the New Testament are in no doubt about this term as a declaration of Jesus' divinity. On the day of Pentecost, Peter used Psalm 110.1 again of Jesus and then declared, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Throughout the Acts, this same sense is attributed to Jesus as Lord. In 2021, the gospel is summarized as repentance to God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two sides of the same coin of salvation. In Acts 19.5, believers at Ephesus are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Also through Acts, the term Lord is used interchangeably of God and of Jesus. In Acts 7.59, Stephen even commends his spirit to the Lord Jesus as he is stoned to death. In the writings of Paul, the term Lord for Jesus is used over 230 times. Paul is very clear about who he thinks this Lord is. And Paul uses Old Testament passages that were about Yahweh constantly and refers them to be about Jesus. Time and again he does that. So, for example, in Romans 10.13, where Paul quotes from Joel 3.2, where it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved. Paul identifies this directly with with acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Philippians 2.11, Paul tells us that Jesus has been given the name which is above every name. This, of course, is the name Yahweh. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 and 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul identifies the Old Testament term, the day of the Lord, i.e. the coming of Yahweh, with the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, the judgment seat of God becomes the judgment seat of Christ. As Old Testament believers called on the name of Yahweh, so New Testament believers call on the name of Jesus. Jesus is identified by Paul as the Lord of the church and overlord of the world. The Spirit of God is called by Paul the Spirit of Christ. All of Paul's writing and preaching is characterized by the recognition of the absolute equality and unity between Christ and the Father. Paul even recreates the Shema, the prayer that all Jews prayed daily around the truth that Jesus and the Father are co-equal. 
In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He's equating Father and Son together. For Paul, the Lordship of Jesus is the central testimony of the apostolic teaching. It's the confession of his Lordship. The Lordship of him who bore the sin of the world as the crucified Lord and offers life to dying men as risen Lord. It's that acknowledgement of that Lordship that saves us. Cranfield says the following. We take it that for Paul, the confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the name and nature, the holiness, the authority, the power, the majesty and the eternity of the one and only true God. And we've looked previously at how the writer to the Hebrews identifies Jesus' divinity. It's worth looking at one final New Testament reference regarding the title Lord, which is in Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. In Deuteronomy 10:17, Yahweh is identified as God of gods and Lord of lords. And it's this term that John draws upon as he recounts in his visions in the book of Revelation. But now the terms are being applied directly to Jesus in his victory over all the agents of the enemy. He sees Jesus exalted and riding on a horse. And he can only just proclaim, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, there is none higher. If Jesus is not Yahweh attributing the term Lord to him, or even Lord of Lords is blasphemy. And the New Testament writers were in no doubt as to the status of Jesus. He is the one who reigns over all. He is the one in whom the authority of the world rests. He is the king above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. There is no one higher. There is no one greater. There is no one else in whom there is salvation. There is no one else in whom we can put our trust. Jesus is Lord. So coming back to where we started, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our salvation is dependent upon our confession of Jesus as Lord. It's affirming that Jesus of Nazareth, the one born into poverty in a stable, the one who died on a cross, is in fact the one in authority over all things. For the New Testament church, confession of Jesus as Lord stood opposed to confessing Caesar as Lord. If they acknowledged Caesar as Lord, they meant they had to burn um, incense to Caesar and give uh, gifts to Caesar. And they wouldn't do it because they knew that in acknowledging Caesar as Lord, they would be um, compromising on their commitment to Jesus as Lord. For us too, confessing Jesus as Lord is to bow the knee to him. It's to make him Lord of everything. It's to surrender all that we are to his rulership. It's to to acknowledge that there is meaning and hope in nobody else and in nothing else. For the New Testament believers, coming to faith in Jesus was not adding a bit of religion into their lives so that they could feel better or get goosebumps once in a while. It was a life-changing, life-defining moment 
when everything of their past was surrendered and all things became new. And for many, it cost them their lives. No longer were they they to continue living as they had before by the values of this world. Instead, they were now serving a new Lord. As I asked last week, is Jesus your king? So I asked this week, is Jesus your Lord? Is everything surrendered to him? Does everything in your life align with his teaching and values? I'm not saying we should be perfect right now, nor do I want to bring guilt on any of us. But the drift of our lives must be an ever greater submission to his lordship as we walk in relationship with him. He must be becoming Lord as well as being Lord over everything that we are, over everything we want to be, over all our resources, over all our ambitions, over everything that there is in our lives. If he is not Lord of all, as the old saying goes, he's not Lord at all. There's a drift that must be taking place as we walk with him, that he is, we are being more and more submitted to him day by day. Making Jesus Lord is also of great comfort to us. It means acknowledging that there is someone greater in whom we put our trust. Someone who is able to see the end from the beginning. Someone who can calm the raging storm. Someone to whom we can come with all our needs, just as those in the New Testament came. Someone who will comfort us, strengthen us and direct us. Making Jesus Lord is the best thing we can do. Further, Jesus is Lord of all right now. There is nothing in this world that's not under his authority. As we go out into the world, we can do so in the knowledge that Jesus is in charge no matter what happens in this world. Jesus is in control and he will bring about his purposes in the earth. That's one thing we can be sure about. It may seem right now that the earth, the world is in turmoil. That there's, you know, some have talked about us being on the brink of war this week. Not yet convinced, but who knows. But we can rest in the assurance that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the one in authority over heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who has the control of this universe and the destiny of this world in his hand. And as we put our trust in him, even though it might seem shaky and flaky all around us, Jesus will see this world through to his, his desired end. There is no one greater. There is no one higher. There is no other name given amongst men by which we can be saved. In these times of trouble, in these times of difficulty, let's remember, let's reaffirm and put our trust in Jesus as Lord. Amen.